welcome to the Michigan Policy Cast. I'm Sean Danino. And I'm Matt Miller. We're excited to be rejoining you this week. The date of this recording is April 13th, 2017, and we are recording this at approximately 5.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, we're going to kick things off with a little bit of news out of Michigan. So the capital of Michigan, Lansing, actually declared itself a sanctuary city in a unanimous city council vote. Um, what's especially interesting about this story is that it's similar to Austin, where there is a, a sort of red capital for a purplish state, and we see the, the actions of um, people inside of the city council sort of deferring pretty dramatically from the actions of the legislature, where there's generally a lot of hostility towards undocumented immigrants. But this was um, a refreshing and surprising bit of news out of Michigan. Absolutely. And I think, too, it speaks to, we see this dynamic again and again of sort of state houses being controlled by the right and Republican-leaning uh, legislatures, as you mentioned. Uh, but also, it's encouraging to see that though there is this you know, right-leaning control that also they embrace more progressive ideas. And right. I mean, it'll, it'll uh, be a story that we'll keep our eye on as to how the federal government decides to you know, respond to this, yeah. to this action. Surprised many. Absolutely. Uh, and so also in Michigan news, and this is something that I will touch on a little later in the episode, but Janet Yellen, the chair of the Federal Reserve, spoke at the University of Michigan on Monday, uh, sponsored by uh, Sean and I, uh, our school, the Ford School. Uh, and it was a conversation between the dean of the Ford School, Susan Collins, and Chair Yellen about a host of topics of which were covered by major news outlets from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal. So we're very excited that the university had the power to both attract and then do a great job hosting arguably the most powerful person in the world. Yeah, it's very exciting. Matt, did you get to ask her any questions? I did, in fact. I was one of two students to ask a handful of questions that were submitted by the Ooh. audience and via Twitter. Uh, so really excited to yeah. chat a, a little bit more about that later. Excited to hear more about that for sure. Um, so on the top of our national news, we wanted to talk about Donald Trump giving his salary away and fulfilling one of his promises. Um, so he gave his salary away, I believe it was two Mondays ago, to the Department of the Interior. Um, and the statistic that I wanted to point out is that the salary that he was giving away was 0.00251% of his net worth. Wow. But we'd need to see those tax returns before we actually get an accurate sense of what that net worth actually is. Yes, yes. This uh, uh, very rudimentary math was based on only <laughs> estimates of his, uh, of his net worth. And I can only speak for myself, but I would personally rather see a, an amount of disinvestment in firms and conflict of interest between right. the Trump organization besides giving away a you know, 500K a year salary. Yeah, and the other last interesting point on this is that after or before giving $70,000 to the Department of Interior, I believe he cut their budget by something like $1.6 billion. So $70,000, $1.6 billion, not, not quite the same number, but <laughs> worth mentioning. Wow. Uh, in other Trump news, uh, President Trump signed a bill on Monday repealing internet privacy rules passed last year by the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, that would have given internet users greater control over what service providers can do with their data. Uh, and this all was confirmed by a White House spokeswoman. 
so those FCC regulations would have required broadband companies to get permissions from their customers in order to use their sensitive data, such as browsing history, geolocation, financial medical information, to create targeted advertisements. Sean, this feels as though those regulations seem like a good thing. Uh, what, what's up with this? <laughs> with this move by Trump? <laughs> it's, it's a great question. Um, and, and I should disclose that when we said it uh, passed on Monday, we, we did write this story um, a couple weeks ago. So mm. it's a little bit dated, but mm -hmm. it's still incredibly relevant because, um, yeah, internet privacy rules are one of those issues that don't get a lot of press but matter a lot. Um, and Donald Trump has a very cozy relationship with internet service providers. Um, like we've mentioned in past episodes, the new chair of the FCC, Ajit Pai, is very much um, an alum of the telecom industry and of the, I believe, the National Telecom Industry Association, the lobbying group that works on behalf of Comcast and AT&T mm -hmm. and Verizon. Um, and yeah, they're basically like what, what this change in legislation does is makes it easier for these internet service providers to have one more monetization stream um, using our personal data and selling it against us to create these targeted advertisements. Um, and this is relevant to our next story because the world's largest pornography websites, which are actually very, uh, very horizontally integrated, very, very much owned by only a, a few individuals, hmm. um, they started encrypting their data. Um, so porn, the Pornhub announcement came um, at an auspicious time. Uh, Congress this week affirmed the power of cable providers to sell user data. Um, while as, a few weeks ago, as of a few weeks ago, uh, more than half the web had officially embraced uh, HTTPS, which is a type of protocol that adds an extra layer of security and encryption. Um, so yeah, encryption, it, worth clarifying, it doesn't solve all of our problems mm -hmm. when it comes to internet service providers. Um, they'll still get to know that you were on Pornhub, but how, what pages you directed to afterwards, some of your particular kinks and preferences, um, that data is fortunately going to be more difficult to come by um, for the FCC and for our internet service providers, um, thanks to them embracing these new security protocols. Wow, so do we expect the, the move by the FCC with repealing some of these internet privacy rules to in any way impact this sort of announcement that um, pornography sites are gonna begin encryption? Like, is it still possible for a pornography site to state this goal, yet not necessarily be able to control that um, with their interaction with, say, like a Comcast or Verizon or Xfinity, any kind of internet service provider. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not an internet security expert, mm -hmm. but from <laughs> you know, like from from my limited understanding of this issue, I think what it sounds like is internet service providers will get the information that we went to a porn site for sure. Mm -hmm. But what they will not know is which sub pages we visited within it. Mm -hmm. So basically everything after Pornhub.com, everything that follows that forward slash with all of our very unique preferences, <laughs> um, that's, that's data that the ISPs are no longer going to be able to get because of these actions that Pornhub took seemingly on behalf of their consumers. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's refreshing to see um, an industry which is v very controversial, um, really siding with consumers and, and privacy and, and championing the rights of individuals. Absolutely. And sort of continuing this theme of maybe conflicting opinions and actions by uh, some uh, specific people, 
there was a focus group run by uh, staff at Vox.com yep. that demonstrated that half of Trump supporters support a single-payer health care option. Now, granted, there's a very small sample size of six people, but to quote from the article, uh, we are in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, sitting in a sparse conference room at a big white table. Perry, who co-owns the research firm Perry Undum, asked the six-member group a question. Who likes Canada's health insurance system? Who wishes we had something like that? And half of the hands shot up. Yeah, it's it's incredibly surprising, and I think uh, you know d something we were talking about a little bit offline is that there's just seems to reaffirm like a continuing disconnect in the way Trump supporters sort of look at um, the healthcare policy in general and whether or not they favor it having a lot more to do with which name is attached to it mm -hmm. more so than the actual policies. Um, you know, reading into the article, it seemed like somebody in the focus group uh, was very. Without even bringing up single payer, they started volunteering a whole bunch of information about Canada's single payer system and and praising the system. Um, so it's an interesting question of whether or not more information about yeah. these policies um, will really shift public opinion on this, and and what the best way to do that is sort of like an open question. Absolutely, I think too this is a question that will not be resolved today, but it brings to light this issue of if there is a policy that does a great job at doing what it had set out to do, yes. which some may argue the Affordable Care Act has done, yet the vast majority of the public do isn't either aware of its successes or it's painted in a negative light. Right. Does it really matter how successful that program is? So it's sort of this idea of as, is good policy enough or does good policy need to be also married with a communication strategy and some sort of political rhetoric that makes it, you know, in Americans' heads that this specific policy was effective. Yeah, and and we're gonna we're gonna have more later on. Um, the an issue that's that's top of mind for me is the way the name that's attached to a given policy um, really affects the level of public support and public opinion that backs it. Um, yeah, and and moving on, let's going into another story about the tech industry's interactions with Donald Trump. Um, Twitter actually recently sued the government um, to uh, when the government requested that they unmask um, some accounts that were critical of Trump. Um, so Twitter sued the federal government um, a, a little over a week ago to block the unmasking of an anonymous account that had posted messages critical of the Trump administration um, and has claimed ties to a government agency. Um, this is from the New York Times. The suit sets up a potential confrontation between the Trump administration and Twitter over digital privacy, which is a thorny issue that has driven a wedge between the tech industry and government in the past. We can recall some clashes between Apple and the mm -hmm. Obama administration, mm -hmm. actually. Um, so Twitter disclosed in a federal court filing that it had received a summons directing it to reveal the identity or identities of those behind at alts, U-S-C-I-S, which is one of the several so-called alt accounts that are run by people purporting to be current or former federal employees. Hmm. Um, yeah, Matt, what do you make of this? I think it, this is an issue that has provided a lot of conflict, internal conflict yeah. and mental conflict because I think it's so difficult for me to reconcile a question of are we following a slippery slope when we 
demand from tech companies that they give up personal information. Right. So that's a, a very significant cost, yet we have issues such as the one you mentioned in San Bernardino and Apple in which there are significant and relevant benefits associated with those costs. And I think for me, I just, that calculus has come out positive in some ways and negative in another. Right. I really, I'm having a tough time reconciling. Right. I mean, especially it's, I, I like that you talk about the, the difficulty in reconciling this because on the one hand, the, these former employees or current employees are working to subvert the actions of um, you know, a federal agency to a certain degree mm -hmm. um, when the priorities that that federal agency really clash with you know, the Constitution and our values, it brings up a really interesting moral gray area. Um, and we should mention that the Alt-USCIS is, um, the, the Twitter handle is for former employees or potentially current employees of uh, U.S. Customs and Immigration or the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so this is, this is a space where there is, you know, Trump has really sort of stepped into it when it comes to, um, you know, public opinion with so many Americans opposing the wall and, and his policies around immigration and the Muslim ban. So this is a very controversial space to be in. Um, and it's, I, I have to say that I, I am particularly um, alarmed by the actions of the Trump administration and, and trying to um, unmask critics. I think mm -hmm. that, 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 level of, uh, that level of discord between um, dissenters and whistleblowers and the federal government um, and, and the attempt to uncover them is, is at the very least disconcerting. Mm -hmm. Such a great point. I think you know, the anonymity seems to provide a lot of uh, at least defense for those that would be likely to be whistleblowers and those that would be likely to call, you know, speak truth to authority. Yeah, and we, we both feel strongly that whistleblowers are important people to protect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and to continue with Trump news, and just as a complete aside, it, if it seems as though all of these news stories have a consistent stream and consistent theme of being attached to Trump, <laughs> I think the idea, and this is something that uh, I think Trevor Noah had brought up in an in interview with David Remnick of The New Yorker that though all of these stories seem to be Trump related, it's because you know these policies and politics affect real people and it really, the, the reach is so vast and touches yes. so many parts of our lives that these stories, though having this you know, one figure as the center um, are so disparate and different that we can't help but have this be the common theme yep. between them. Absolutely. Uh, so in, in the spirit of that, uh, this story comes to us from both CNN and resistancereport.com that uh, Trump has been spending taxpayer money on vacations at nearly five times the rate that Barack Obama did. Uh, so to put some numbers to that headline, Donald Trump's travel to his private club in Florida, the Winter White House, mm -hmm. some may call it, <laughs> has cost over an estimated $20 million in his first 80 days as president, putting the president on pace in his first year of office to surpass former President Barack Obama's spending on travel for his entire eight years. Wow. Uh, so in contrast, uh, President Os Obama spent between 85 to 96 million in eight years, which puts um, at the high end an annual cost of 12 million, 
compared to the 20 million that Donald Trump has spent in the first 80 days. Yeah. So, yeah, Sean, why does this matter? Why do we care? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, I mean, $12 million is obviously a drop in the bucket relative to the federal budget. Um, but I think that it reflects, it reflects an important hypocrisy in how Donald Trump communicates about um, a lot of these issues. Like, it was so frequent to hear him give Obama flack for golfing. Um, and, you know, Donald Trump has actually blocked reporters uh, by putting, you know, black plastic bags over the windows of their hotels. He's actually blocked reporters at Mar-a-Lago from taking pictures of him golfing because that contrast is just um, too obvious to draw. Now, when, you know, the when the president is spending so much of his time vacationing, um, we have to ask ourselves what, um, where are his priorities? And I think that <laughs> it's, it's, it's disconcerting because it, it reflects like he may not be mentally prepared for the, the level of taxing that this job is. Um, yeah, and I think, it, I think it matters a lot. So last week, uh, the federal government um, decided to bomb a Syrian airstrip in response to a uh, chemical attack that Bashar al-Assad launched against some of his own citizens. And um, in describing the attack, there was language that Brian Williams of MSNBC used. Um, he quoted a guy named Leonard Cohen saying that, uh, I am guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and it was, it was a phrase that, so obviously there was, there was a lot of praise um, to Donald Trump's attacks and, and we're gonna be talking a little bit more about public opinion and a little bit with response to Donald Trump. Um, but there was a lot of praise towards the attacks even from people as progressive as Fareed Zakaria. Um, but hearing Brian Williams actually praise the beauty of our weapons um, made me really, really uncomfortable. Like it, it just, I have trouble. I have trouble with the idea that a journalist can use aggrandizing language to describe like a weapon system as beautiful. I don't think that any tool that's used to kill other people should ever be described as beautiful. And quite frankly, I think Brian Williams should be ashamed of himself for using this language. And MSNBC should distance themselves once again from him for doing this. I think that's really well said. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, yeah, talk to us about Janet Yellen. Okay, Matt. okay. Woo. Allow me to gush for a couple minutes about uh, Janet Yellen. Fangirl. Who I uh, had the honor of asking a couple of uh, questions towards, and University of Michigan had the honor of hosting uh, this past Monday. So a couple of substantive pieces of news that came out of uh, this conversation between Chair Yellen and the Dean of the Ford School, Susan Collins. Uh, so Chair Yellen described the state of the economy as actually fairly positive, um, or mm. as positive as a Fed chair would uh, dare admit uh, in a session in which uh, reporters were there covering her words. So she said that the Fed is, quote, doing pretty well, end quote. <laughs> in meeting the mandated goals of low and stable inflation and full strength labor market. And in fact, I, so the last question that I asked Chair Yellen was, she mentioned throughout her conversation the role the Fed plays in managing expectations and that oftentimes the most powerful tool that the Fed has 
is just signaling to individuals, to firms, to households, right. where the price is gonna go and where inflation might go and where interest ma rates might go. So I asked her, you know, given, given this role of the Fed, you know, is it difficult to go about your daily life knowing that your words arguably matter more hmm. than anyone else? Yeah, what did uh, she say? And she, in, <laughs> in a moment that shouldn't surprise any of us, in a very diplomatic way, yes. sort of described this responsibility and again sort of reiterated that the, the role of the Fed has shifted yes. and that it's now much more about rhetoric and about expectation setting than it is necessarily about making decisive actions. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like Fed speak to me. It really does, yeah. yeah. And she, um, so she also sort of with this positive outlook, um, those in the media have looked towards that and gotten the sense that they expect the Fed to gradually raise interest rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, to sort of, they so Chair Yellen described right after 2008, 2009, having the Fed have their foot entirely on the gas pedal to try to ramp up the economy. And now she believes that they're pretty much at full capacity. In yeah. fact, the unemployment rate is lower than what they would uh, target as to be suitable. I think it's at around 4.5%. Yeah. Uh, so she's really viewing the Fed's role now as kind of maintaining that gas pedal right. but not having it be pushed down as far. So what that usually means, raising interest rates or the expectation to raise interest yeah. rates. One thing that we don't have to get into today but something that I really wish more academics would look into yeah. and study is what is the impact of these interest rates of this Fed policy on the poor. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the, it's, it's always, you know, whenever I hear federal bankers talk, um, <laughs> or anybody in monetary policy, it always, it always feels disconnected from conversations about, um, you know, the most vulnerable populations. And mm -hmm. when it comes to Janet Yellen's role, um, I think one, one concern I've heard out of a lot of economists is the, while the unemployment rate is at 4.5%, which mm -hmm. is a, a beautiful number to, you know, like <laughs> Donald Trump terminology, uh, while we are at 4.5%, uh, labor force participation mm -hmm. is, is lower than it has been in previous yes. decades. Um, and one thing that I'm very concerned about, especially being in the tech industry and looking to things like self-driving cars and thinking about, you know, the advent of companies like Uber um, is the role that automation is going to play and mm -hmm. the impact that automation will have um, on not just labor force participation to use like the, you know, the economics parlance, but the most vulnerable populations that rely on services like Uber for their income. Um, what does, what do the next few decades look like them and how are we better preparing them for the future? Absolutely, there's actually some really exciting news that I don't think has made it to uh, media outlets yet, but the organization Y Combinator, mm -hmm. who is very much in this sort of tech yeah. space, they are committed to choosing a specific city in a specific state of which uh, Lansing is in the running for mm. to devote $20 million mm -hmm. to pilot test a universal basic income. Basic income, right. Which is so cool and I think it speaks directly to your point. Is yeah. there a responsibility as these jobs are slowly being automated 
to, in some ways, um, compensate those that lose. Yeah, it's cool to see somebody in the tech industry. I mean, the Y Combinator is the most powerful incubator on the planet. Mm -hmm. They're the reason that we know Dropbox and Airbnb exist. Um, so yeah, it's, it's exciting to see them in that space. Um, now, the story that we want to close with is, like we promised, uh, having to do with public opinion data. Um, so the backdrop is this. In 2013, when Barack Obama was president, um, a Washington Post-ABC News poll found that 22% of Republicans supported the U.S. launching missile strikes against Syria in response to Assad using chemical weapons against civilians. Now, a new Post-ABC poll um, from last week found that 86% of Republicans support Donald Trump's decision to launch strikes on Syria for the same reason. Mm. Um, this is a 64 percentage point movement that we saw in public opinion from Republicans over the course of four years. The only thing that really changed is the person who was president at the time. Um, and to call a 64 point movement in any form of public opinion poll an anomaly uh, would be a dramatic understatement. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, this reflects to a lot of the lessons we were you know, mentioning when it comes to single payer and the level of support, whether or not Obama or Trump's name is attached to it. But seeing, seeing a 64-point movement, how does, are, are you skeptical? What are, what are your thoughts on this, Matt? I, you know, I'm, <laughs> it's tough because for me it's not surprising, yeah. which in and of itself I think is a problem, yeah. that we see these, you know, following the nuclear option in the Senate of cutting debate, removing this power of a strong minority against a majority, yeah. that things have become so fractioned uh, and partisan to the point where stats like this, you know, I'm surprised that it wasn't 100%. Right. Uh, and 0% when Obama uh, was president. And the dichotomy, as you mentioned before, with Obamacare perceptions versus Affordable Care Act perceptions, that we are so drawn to these party distinctions yeah. that it, it arguably influences public opinion more than the policy itself. Yep, absolutely. So I think that's all we have time for today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Sean. Uh, my name is Matt Hiller. I'm Sean Danina. Thank you very much. Chat next week.